Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Do you remember when the word Bork was somebody's name? Or swiping a credit card was a crime? Do you remember when the word gay meant happy and politics was related to polite? How about text? That was always something on paper. Now it's also a verb, something you send or do. Do you remember when the word babble meant gateway to God? In our story today, is the history of the changing of that word when God scattered the nations. The word Babel came to mean what it means. Genesis 11, verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. Literally, the whole earth had one lip and one vocabulary, one set of words one way of pronouncing those words, one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Now you see a discrepancy in translations. Many translations will say as they journeyed eastward. If you journey eastward from the Ararat Mountains, you'll come to this place. So since it could be translated either way, I think the appropriate translation is they headed east rather than from the east. Verse 3, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. There's not very many stones in this part of the world. If they had been in Israel, uh, that would be no problem at all. There's a, a Jewish folktale 
of two angels carrying rocks uh, to scatter across the earth for God, and one of them dropped his on the land of Israel. <laughs> Verse 4, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we do what God wants us to do. He wanted them to scatter across the whole earth. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Uh, it's surmised that this tower is a ziggurat, um, something that's built still in that part of the world, part of uh, architectural lore and drawings and sketches and sculptures. That this was built for religious purposes, for a ladder so God could come down. Um, God doesn't need our efforts to come down. And we can't climb up to his level. The old Southern Gospel song said, He came down to my level when I couldn't get up to his. He came to our need. Uh, Jacob had a vision at a place he named Bethel after this experience. And this vision was a ladder that reached into heaven and angels were going up and down that ladder. And when he awoke or came back to his normal self, he named the place Bethel and said, this is the gateway of heaven. And so there are churches that take that name. It's a good name, even though the name Babel meant that. It was not a good thing. The Lord came down on his own ladder. <laughs> uh, God coming down, uh, his spirit falling, his spirit being poured out is... Um, terminology in which we can understand, because we know that God is everywhere, right? He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And yet, he can live in us in a way that he doesn't live in other places, right? If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go to the lowest hell, you are there. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. He's so vast, the song says, that he can hold the world in the palm of his hand, and yet so small he can live in the heart of a man. So in him coming down, I think this is a term saying God's presence is manifested in a specific location. In a language we understand, God comes down to that place. So the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They're unified. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. If their minds can conceive it, they can achieve it. Sounds like a motivational speech there. But this was going to be contrary to God's plan and God's will and was not a good thing. So he uses their language. He can do so. Because as Elohim, he can speak of himself in the plural, he too says, come, let us. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad 
from there over the face of all the earth. And they ceased building the city. You reckon? Construction project came to an end. The foreman couldn't get the point across. The workers couldn't understand the blueprints. The brick makers burned the fire a little too hot or made the bricks too soft. Communication was a problem. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. In Hebrew, the word Babel means confusion. What a change. There the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth, which is what he had commanded them to do. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask you, Lord, to speak to us from your word. Help us to see from the revelation of Scripture what you would have us to learn today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject of divine encounters. We're on a verse-by-verse journey or a passage-by-passage journey through the book of Genesis, looking for Jesus as a person, but also as a Savior and as his mode of operating, his patterns, his consistent uh, character, his mission, his purpose as it is fulfilled in the earth as portrayed in this wonderful book of Genesis, which is the roots of the gospel. My life has been changed more than once from fresh, fresh understanding of this wonderful book. If you've ever had an encounter with God, it changes your life. When you become a believer, it's not because some salesman with a slick tongue talked you into some kind of decision. If you became a believer that way, um, ask the Lord to confirm your salvation. I don't want to put doubt in anyone's heart. But the majority of people that are saved, there's some encounter with God. Some are more radical than others. Some are quite simple. I mean, just the Lord opened your eyes and you were blind, but now you see. One of the most radical stories I heard uh, years ago, Yvette and I had a duplex in Irving and we rented out both sides. And one of the first couples that lived there was Chuck and Giovanna Holloway. Giovanna was an Italian-Canadian or a Canadian of Italian descent. And she became a believer as a little girl. She was raised Roman Catholic, and her dad took her to a Billy Graham crusade. And while Billy Graham is preaching, the gospel's being proclaimed, she has a vision. And in the vision, the Lord takes her from her seat, puts her on top of the stadium where she can see everything that's going on, and he explains what Billy Graham is conveying. Who knows you need help in understanding the gospel? He explained, and she became a believer that day. Maybe your experience wasn't that radical, but the point is we need an encounter with God to change our life, right? So I'm not promoting weirdness. I'm promoting an encounter with God that changes your life. Encounters with God do this. and We see this in the book of Genesis and throughout Scripture. God visits his people for one of two purposes or two purposes. To establish his covenant for the purpose of establishing covenant and exercising 
judgment. We're going to see that in the following passages. In the fall of man, Adam and his wife messed up. God comes into the garden. They hide themselves. He calls to Adam and says to him, where are you? Brings them to a place of confession, although they shirked the blame, really didn't confess. They blamed the devil. Adam blamed God, blamed his wife. And God exercised judgment in the slaying of of animals to clothe them and the pronunciation of curses upon the earth as a consequence of sin, one of which involved death, which had been forewarned should they rebel against God. But also it contained a promise, a promise of the Savior who would come and establish covenant for us. And that promise is in Genesis 3.15. When the seed of woman would come and crush or bruise the head of the serpent, and the process having his heel bruised. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of woman, not man and woman, had an earthly mother, God was his father. And in crushing the head of the serpent, he received the judgment of God for sin in his own body on the tree, thus disarming Satan, who could hold the judgment of God against us, use the curse against us, by receiving that curse upon himself, yet without sinning. And in the process, having one of his heels bruised. What an amazing covenant that we have been given. In chapter 4, God encounters Cain and warns him that if his offering is not accepted, sin lies at the door of his heart, and he should rule over that. And Cain kills his brother Abel, and then God confronts Cain again, says, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know, which is a lie. Am I my brother's keeper, which is another lie. We are one another's keepers. You see me going off track, you better confront me if you love me. And if you're afraid of somebody saying, you're judging me, you're just being afraid. Uh, Speak the truth in love to one another. Restore one another, Galatians says. In a spirit of gentleness, lest you also get trapped in the same. So in dealing with Cain, here comes judgment. He's marked, and he's an outsider for the rest of his life, and he's protected. Another occasion, in the flood, the Lord saw, Genesis 6, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he's going to have to deal with this. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And he established his covenant with Noah while raining judgment down on the earth. See that? We have a sign of that covenant in the rainbow. Genesis 9, after the flood, God encounters Noah again, or Noah encounters God again, has another divine encounter. He speaks to Noah and to his son, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your descendants. And he tells them the terms of this covenant is for them to fulfill his will in populating the earth. Of course, their descendants rebelled against that. We read the story of that today. Chapter 11, this is what we read. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. 
And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down in there, confuse their language, that they, that they may not be able to understand one another's speech. So this is the judgment of God to get them back to walking in the boundaries of the covenant he had made with Noah and his descendants. So you see judgment and covenant, you see the two are together. In meeting with Abram, he tells him in the next chapter, we'll see this next week, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And he goes on to say, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is an encounter that Abram has with God and it puts him on a path that will lead to a covenant that God makes with him in chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. This kind of promise is hard for us to imagine in our culture where we're just built on covenant breakers galore. Uh, you can have all kinds of lawyers, and yet people will still break their agreement with you. But God promised not to break his covenant with us. The next chapter, the Lord appeared to him, Abraham. His name had been changed to Abraham in chapter 17. By the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door, in the heat of the day. And he promises him that he's going to give him a son at a certain time. And Sarah, his wife, hears it through the tent fabric, and she laughs. It'll never happen. We're too old. And God confronts her, and it happens in chapter 21. But at the same visitation, they left Abraham's house after promising them this covenant son, and go and bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. The Genesis 18 encounter resulted in a covenant son for Abraham and Sarah and in final judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Same encounter, same coming down, same God. Well, my God doesn't judge. Well, be careful we don't create God in our own image and have an idol who is not God. He is the great judge. Chapter 21, here's the fulfillment of that word. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said in chapter 18. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken in chapter 18. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him in chapter 18. The same chapter where he rains down fire and brimstone and completely destroys Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. These covenant slash judgment encounters continue with Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph 
And throughout biblical history, with heroes like Moses and Joshua, the judges and kings and priests and prophets, people are encountered by God. They have divine encounters, and he strengthens them in their covenant and or he judges them, scatters them across the world like he told them he would. These divine encounters bring us up to the Messiah's arrival, our Lord Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach, when he fulfilled the First Testament's covenant while establishing a new covenant through receiving the judgment for sin upon himself freely for us all. He came for covenant and for judgment. Every miracle he performed was a blessing to humanity to draw us into a covenant relationship with himself, but it was also an act of judgment against the kingdom of darkness. Satan oppresses humanity. Christ came and set them free. So the act of peace was an act of war, depending on which kingdom you're a part of dark side tried to take him out. But in so doing, God used it. God's so awesome, his greatest enemies wind up working for him, right? There's a verse in the Old Testament that says, God made all things for himself, even the wicked for the day of doom. He's awesome. What he has purposed will be done. You can resist him and he will use it for his glory. There's a form of martial arts I've heard about called Aikido. And the strategy of Aikido is to use your opponent's strength against themselves. Like if they lunge at you, join with the lunging and just help them lunge further till they hit the ground. God kind of operates that way. Ten days after this 33-plus-year encounter with the Son of God, there's another divine encounter with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Upon New Covenant believers, for the first time this happened, Jesus had promised and then fulfilled for their empowerment. There's a wonderful parallel between this occurrence and the Tower of Babel occurrence. He said prior to his ascending, you will receive power. He said this to his followers with whom he'd established covenant. You will receive power. Can we say power? When the Holy Spirit comes on you, what's this power for? For your own personal pleasure? No. Power to be witnesses. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it happened. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit was poured out on 120 plus, could be 500 followers of Jesus. You have 120 in Acts 1, but you don't know how many are there in Acts 2. And they are empowered to be mighty witnesses. And in this empowering, they speak in languages they didn't learn. And how it happened was they spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance not as their mind gave them utterance or as lessons gave them utterance, but as the Spirit gave them the articulation. They spoke in these other languages. Now, one of the prior judgments of God was in scattering the Israelites across the Roman Empire 
And once a year, many of them would return to Jerusalem for a festival. And one of these festivals for which many of them would return was the festival of Pentecost, which was 50 days after the festival of Passover. And in coming, they had heard about the cross, they had heard about the empty tomb, they had heard about the ministry of Jesus, and they're there, and this thing happened where 120-plus people are speaking in other languages. Acts 2 lists 15 different languages. It was more than that. Declaring the wonderful words of God in languages they can understand. Now, they can tell from the dress or the appearance of the people speaking these languages unknown to them that they are not from Greece or Turkey or Egypt or Libya or one of the other places listed there. And so the question is asked, how is this happening? Is this some kind of new wine? How, how are they speaking in our languages? And Peter gets up and begins to preach in Greek, a language they all understood, and proclaimed the gospel. And in the midst of that preaching, he said this, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So here's another divine encounter where the Son of God at the right hand of the Father receives the promise of the Holy Spirit and pours out the Holy Spirit on his followers in Jerusalem, empowers them to be mighty witnesses. And on this occasion, they spoke in tongues, and there were people present that understood the tongues. And it made them open to hear what Peter had to say. And he proclaimed the gospel. And that day, 3,000 became believers. A couple of chapters later, there's 5,000 that have become believers. And there's a prayer meeting where they pray for God to give them boldness. Remember the promise of power? And the Bible says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and the place where they were praying was shaken. So this promise continued, empowering the followers of Jesus throughout the book of Acts. And we sit here today because of their empowered Unlike what had happened at Babel, on this day, the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, speaking in unknown languages as the Holy Spirit enabled, gathered thousands who had been scattered, resulting in their being united by believing the good news of the new covenant. And for eight years, the church hovered around Jerusalem. It was thousands of people. They lived communally. It was like a a discipleship training center like you wouldn't believe, and then persecution arose, and there came another scattering, them taking the gospel back to their homeland. And we are here today because of that encounter, those encounters. So it's not just the encounter you and I have had, but it's the encounter others have had that God is using in fulfilling his purposes in the earth. This new covenant promise still stands today. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when they heard the gospel, they believed and they said, what shall we do? And he said, repent 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall, we say shall, shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. So this promise isn't just to those followers, but it was to their children and to their children's children. It's a generational promise. You see that? We say generations. But to all, as, to all that are afar off, can we say geography? So it's a promise to time and space, to those that are far away in time and far away in space, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The Lord is still calling. People are still having encounters. He's still empowering his followers. And if you are dry as a stick and depressed in your Christian walk, you just need a fresh encounter with the Lord. And sometimes we just need to repent of unbelief or doubt or bitterness or unforgiveness or grudges. These things eclipse what God wants to do in our life, and we make them bigger than he is when we shouldn't do it. So what's happening? Well, he establishes his covenant, but he also judges. And if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. As many as the Lord loves, he chastens. Who, who here is loved by God? If he loves you, he would chasten you. Just like a good parent will punish their child, will chasten their child, will discipline their child if they love them. If you don't, you're raising a kid that's headed straight to the jailhouse. In fact, I know someone right now that I met as a little boy, and his daddy told me, I'm not going to punish him because my parents punished me too much. We watched him grow up. He's in the jailhouse now, being punished, you know. If you're a young person in here and you have the attitude, nobody's going to tell me what to do, well, guess what? One day you will be told what to do. Hopefully it's not by the biggest man in your cell. Anyway, moving right along. The Lord is still empowering us as his children, as his people, still having divine encounters. What's the purpose of all this? To further his covenant to bring people in to the enjoyment of the new covenant that he has made for us. Look at what Paul, who, who no doubt had an encounter with God on the road to Damascus to persecute and kill Christians, he received judgment, blinded for three days. God opened his eyes physically and spiritually, became a radical evangelist, helping lead others into, into a saving knowledge of Jesus, helping lead others into the enjoyment of the new covenant we have with God. He said this was part of his purpose as it related to God's big purpose to the intent that now the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. God's wisdom is going to be shown through us. 1 Corinthians 1 says that not very many wise, not very many noble if you're dumb as a box of rocks, there's hope for you because God's going to use us all to show that God's wisdom surpasses everybody's wisdom, right? To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. 
And part of this boldness and access with confidence is a better understanding of the Scriptures, but it's also being filled with the Spirit, which isn't something I think that should happen once in a believer's life, but should be a regular occurrence of God strengthening you with His presence, His Spirit filling you and empowering you to be a bold witness. Are you tired of being weak and insipid and bitter and upset when the Lord wants to heal your heart with his presence? Let's pray. Lord, I pray every person here would hunger for a divine encounter with you, Lord, that your covenant might be established in our lives at a deeper level, Lord, have a greater impact on our walk, and that your judgment could be made clear, Lord, where we could see where we need to let go of certain things, and where we need to embrace certain things, and where we need to walk and talk and not walk and not talk. In Jesus' name, Lord, give us the boldness that only your Spirit can give by filling us and empowering us. In Jesus' name, amen.
talk about the Tower of Babel and the day of Pentecost and skip over speaking in tongues. <gasps> what happened in Acts chapter 2? Let's agree on being filled with the Spirit is important, right? In Acts 4, they prayed for boldness. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them, all 5,000, including the 3,000 that were baptized, including the 120 plus that were filled with the Holy Spirit initially. In Acts chapter 8, the gospel had been carried to Samaria, and they baptized a lot of people. Plenty of people had become believers, but they had not yet had the encounter of being filled with the Spirit. And the apostles came down from Jerusalem to lay hands on them that they might receive the Spirit, and it happened. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is at the house of some Gentiles. And while he's preaching the gospel, they become believers, hearing the word. And while they're hearing the word, they become filled with the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues, just like in Acts 2, Acts 4 and 8, it didn't mention speaking in tongues. They spoke in tongues and magnified God. Peter knew they were believers then, and he baptized them. And so the, the gospel crossed over the racial lines into the Gentile world. And this pattern continued all the way to Acts 19. Paul meets 12 believers that had been baptized by John the Baptist. He said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? Now, why would he ask that? Because becoming a believer is salvation. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is not salvation. Now, it can happen simultaneously like it did in Acts 10 or separately like it did in all the other places. You're saved and he laid hands on them after rebaptizing them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, we have instances, other instances in Acts of being filled with the Holy Spirit and joy. The bottom line isn't tongues, it's power to be a witness. But if you're like this against anything that doesn't fit your understanding, be careful you don't do this to God, holding him back. Let God be God in every situation. Maybe you read a book 300 pages against something that should only take two or three pages, right? Here's basically what happened in early in uh, church history in the last hundred years. Uh, speaking in tongues became more and more frequent, and some people took it too far, all right? And then there was pushback against it. And so then wherever there's pushback, people will take things too far to push back against the pushback. And it became like the churches I was raised in, a salvation issue. You weren't saved unless you spoke in tongues. And, and you keep that mentality. You're not even saved till the rapture comes. So you got a church full of tongue-talking people who don't even know if they're saved. I don't know about you, but the Holy Spirit gives assurance of salvation. So... Maybe they copied what somebody said in their ear and they didn't really receive the Holy Spirit. I don't know. I don't want to question that. But I want to challenge you and I to hunger, to be filled with the Spirit, to be emboldened, to be witnesses, and to be open to speaking in other languages should the Lord empower you. Well, does it mean there needs to be an interpreter in a public meeting? If I get in a microphone and speak in tongues, there should be an interpreter. But in your private chamber, Paul prayed in tongues more than any of them. He said in 1 Corinthians 14, without an interpreter. 
But in church, he said, I would rather speak five words of my understanding than hundreds in words that nobody understood. So the bottom line is being empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses. Maybe you have received the Holy Spirit and you have spoken in tongues, but where's the power? Where's the boldness? Are you still a pipsqueak for Jesus? Say, Lord, judge this situation. Empower me to be your will. Amen? We do that. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. The peace that passes understanding. The peace that is based upon his finished work. In Jesus' name, amen.